we are on our second week of our series on communication, communicating his story. Let's talk. And throughout the series, we are looking at the way we communicate, the way and to do so, we're going to the way Jesus and his followers interacted with people. And we see in the Bible a lot of different situations and scenarios where that took place, where Jesus communicated his message or his followers communicated his message. Sometimes at work, sometimes one-on-one, uh, -on -one, sometimes to a group, sometimes in homes, in private places, just all many, many different scenarios where that happens. And we are talking about communicating that message, but also just the way we communicate in our day-to-day -day interactions with other people, because words are powerful, they're meaningful, and the interactions and conversations we have with people are quite powerful, or they can be. And we're going to be in John chapter 3 again today. I was going to break this into two parts, but as I studied this week, I thought, well, we'll go with three because things tend to grow the more you look into them and study them. But we're going to read our passage again, John chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 21. Some very familiar scripture verses in this passage. Um, and next week we're going to get to the part of the passage where Jesus actually communicates the message and then look at that for a kind of a simple and easy way that you and I can do the same thing. But today we're going to read through our passage again, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Starting in verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, but you do not know these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of. We have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the verdict, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, 
that it may be revealed that his deeds have been done in God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again in prayer. We are grateful that we are together today. We are grateful that we can look to your word and we pray for our community, our nation, the world, as we seek to better communicate your message to tell the story of Jesus to the world. And I pray that we would, in our generation, do our part in doing so, as you've given us great opportunity to do that, and that all of our communication in the world would be worthy of you. And we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, I suppose everybody who was old enough got out and voted yesterday. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm sure you get the same thing, but you start getting these text messages and emails and all these different things that come along with the election. And um, as I was thinking about all these different social issues and, and all the different things that come up with that, it, it definitely colored what we're talking about today. But last week, we talked about Jesus saying to Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've certainly heard that language at some point, you must be born again. But Nicodemus had never heard this. And if you have never heard that, that sounds like a very strange thing to hear. You must be born again. What would that mean? And Nicodemus asked him, how is that possible? How can that be? And in some ways, and I suppose it is intentionally so on the part of Jesus as he says this, it was to contrast the statement, or it was a contrast statement Jesus used to challenge the way Nicodemus viewed God and who God is in his own mind. And everyone we speak to, everyone we talk with, has a picture in their mind of what who and why God is. And everyone has that picture that explains for them who God is. Um, it may be based on assumptions. It may be well-studied. It may be something very far out. It, it may be reasonable. It may be just trying to write it all off. But someone, everyone, has a picture in their mind of how they cope with God. It could even be, I don't know. But everyone has it. Everyone has that. And until someone understands the story of Jesus, his purpose, the gospel, the picture they have in their mind of who God is, is in contrast with the reality of who God is. And attempting to understand the picture that someone has in their mind of who God is, is going to help people like you and me better communicate and talk to people in understanding how they view God, what they think about him, who they think he is. It's going to help us better lead them towards the reality of who he is. And doing that is very important. Telling Jesus is very about very important. It's a mission that we have been given by Jesus. Uh, it's a mission that Christians have been carrying on for thousands of years, millennia now. And many of the concepts that we talk about in this series are beneficial in helping us carry that message to the world, but they're also good for just day-to-day -day talking and communicating with people because every interaction we have is meaningful, even the ones that may not necessarily involve sharing the gospel. That's our message. That's our mission, but it's not necessarily everything we talk about, everything we say. We talk about many other things. 
and our conversations matter. They're important. They're powerful. And we're going to look at a few more points from our passage today. Um, and one of those is another potential step in leading up to telling someone about Jesus. And these things that we talk about are applicable in many different ways, in the way we communicate in many different situations. And we're picking up where we left off last week. Jesus tells Nicodemus, a man must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says something like, how is that possible? How can that be being born again? And Jesus explains several more things to Nicodemus and says, do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. And remember in the series, we're going to read a lot of things that have a lot of theological depth to them, but we're going to kind of move past those so we can stay on track with how the conversations happen and look at that specifically. There's a lot of things we could look at, but I want to stay in track with the actual interaction, the communication, how Jesus talked to people, how his followers talked to people in the Bible. When we looked at eight verses eight and 10, uh, the Bible says this, it says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, but you do not know these things? Now, when Jesus says that, are you a teacher in Israel, but you don't know these things? How does that sound to you when he says that? Because I know me, I get lots of text messages and lots of emails and all kinds of different things. And I'm kind of a person, um, maybe unfortunately so, that kind of tends, when I read something like that, I kind of tend to start from a negative place when I get a message. Like it's really easy to misinterpret what someone says when they message you. And I don't know if you're like that, you may not be like that, but I kind of, when I read it, that's kind of where I start. And I have to take some time and think through it and think about what they mean. And I probably overthink these kinds of things, but it's something I do. But when Jesus says what he does to Nicodemus and saying, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? Now, to me, when I read that, that sounds kind of sarcastic and inflammatory when Jesus says that. Um, kind of like when he said, don't marvel that I say you must be born again. When he says that, it's kind of like similar to saying, well, you, you have a dumb look on your face or you look confused. Um, and at times Jesus did say things that were inflammatory. And when he did, it excited, incited anger, uh, particularly with the religious leaders. He was pretty harsh in the way he spoke to them. And that would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. But in honest interaction with people who are genuine and people who are not deceptive, I don't think we ever see Jesus being intentionally inflammatory. We don't see him being sarcastic. But even though sometimes things he say can kind of sound like that, Jesus had the perfect balance of saying something that would be abrasive enough to catch someone's attention and maybe pull them out of their way of thinking, but still caring enough not to push someone away. And that's a challenge to do that. That's quite an art to pull that off. And I've seen a lot of believers struggle with that. Like I say, the things I've seen and followed this past week and just the chaos of, of elections and things like that have probably colored this, certainly. But I've seen a lot of people struggle with that, how they interact with each other, how they control emotions in their speaking. And I see a lot of believers struggle with that as well. 
And sometimes we become angry and we say things that are intentionally inflammatory, that are meant to offend people. And when we do that, though, we misrepresent Jesus and it hurts our witness and mission and even ripples out and affects other people. Um, I was watching a, well, Christine in the evening, we've been watching this National Geographic documentary on the 80s because we were both teenagers through the 80s. But it's very interesting. Last night, the episode had uh, Jim Baker. Does anybody remember Jim Baker? He was like a televangelist. Yeah, you remember Jim Baker? He had this empire that he had built as a televangelist. And it was to the point that he had to cut, raise or make or do whatever he did, $2 million a day to maintain that. So $60 million a month to keep that machine rolling. Can you imagine the stress of that? That would be so stressful. But he was... Um, arrested and convicted of fraud. He was sent to, sentenced to 45 years in prison, but he ended up only serving nine months. But that charlatan had colored people's opinions. It was such a big deal. And that still carries over today. I still have conversations with people about that, even though it happened, you know, 30 some years ago. And people still have that kind of impression of people like me. And I tell them, you know, look, if I wanted to make money, I'd be doing something else. But those things, those interactions that people have can really have a long-term effect and a big ripple effect in the way people perceive what we say, what we do. Of course, that's an extreme example. When we interact with others and in our mission and see some of the things that go on in the world around us and the struggles, it's very easy for things to get emotional and tip over the edge and maybe we want to say inflammatory things and sometimes we maybe say more than we should and like i say with the election i've seen a lot of that but for me when i get in a situation where i'm talking to someone and maybe it's a, some strong points of disagreement something about religion or god or church or money or whatever it might be i i found it helpful to ask myself a question and think about what am i doing here Okay, what, what is this interaction? What's it about? What do I hope to accomplish in this interaction? Do I want to tell someone about Jesus? Do I want to impart some wisdom? Uh, do I want to express my point of view? Or do I want to win a fight? And sometimes any one of those might be applicable. But really, we're looking more at, do I want to tell someone about Jesus? Or do I want to win a fight? Or do I want to win an argument? Now, today, an argument or debate from my perception, is often confused with the word fight. Argument, debate, those are two different things than a fight. And there's a diff big difference. And here's my take on the difference between those things. An argument or a debate is something that is working towards a solution. It's working towards clarifying something. That's an argument or a debate. But a fight is simply something to be won. And it's an opportunity to beat an opponent. And a fight usually results in insults and attacking a person's character and, and name calling and things like that, as we've probably seen some this past week. A little bit of marital advice when you are at odds with your partner, work towards a solution rather than winning the fight and things will probably turn out better for you. But we don't win fins and influence people by insulting them or telling them how stupid they are. It just doesn't work like that. Um, 
nothing brings up social issues quite like an election. And that always generates a lot of conflict. It's kind of like, it's almost like there's this big bucket of water. And there's a bunch of sediment in it. And then that stirs up all the sediment. And then after a little while, it settles back down again. But unfortunately, the way we sometimes, many people, not just us, of course, but the way we interact about social and cultural issues is trying to win a fight instead of working towards a solution, which makes it very, very difficult to accomplish anything meaningful. It makes it very hard. And my view is there are many issues where the disagreement isn't so much about the desired outcome, but about how to achieve the desired outcome. For We'll, we'll talk about some controversial things this morning. Um, one issue that always comes up, for instance, is abortion. That's a big one. And I have no doubt that there are some listening, maybe here in person, online. You just hear the word and you start to get hot under the collar. It's just a word that just invokes emotion in people. And that's understandable, or, you know, regardless of what side of the issue they're on. It, it stirs things up, which is fair. You know, how people have very strong views on the topic of abortion. And a Bible-believing Christian thinks it's wrong. I mean, it's just obvious when you read the New Testament or the Old Testament. Um, some terrible things happened in Israel. Um, people sacrificed their children to idols. They did horrific things. They burned them alive. And God did not approve, and they suffered the consequences of that. I mean, it's obvious that the Bible teaches against such things. And when we think about that particular topic of abortion, I don't think any rational person on either side of the issue wants to see a woman in a place where she's without support, where she's in trouble, where she's carrying a baby that she's unable to care for, and as terrible as it might sound, she thinks it would be better to get rid of the baby than to go through with the pregnancy. And I don't think any rational person wants to see a woman in that position. Nobody wants to see that. I think we could agree on that probably across the board for the most part. There's always an exception somewhere, but when it comes to that, people disagree on solutions on how to get from point A to B. And there are a host of issues surrounding an issue like abortion. There's so many issues involved with that. It's very complicated to break it down into a single issue of making the procedure itself legal or illegal. That's a gross oversimplification of a very difficult situation. And if we're unwilling to talk about it with people of opposing views without recognizing that maybe we want some similar things, it becomes winning a fight rather than finding a solution. And that's one area that I think I've seen a lot of Christians fail, where we could have excelled. And I'm, I'm not picking on anybody here, of course. I'm just saying in a general sense, um, that's an area that Christians could have done well and still could. But often my view of what I see is people want to win a fight more than they want to find a solution. And it goes to a place when we are trying to win a fight rather than looking for a solution where it goes to a place where it's not about the mother anymore or the baby or the circumstances. It becomes whether or not that procedure should be allowed to be performed and did, tends to discount all of the other issues involved with that. 
And there are real people. There are real life situations in every one of those, and they're all different. There are a minimum of, minimum of three people involved, the mom, dad, the baby, to varying degrees. And there are an infinite number of possible situations and circumstances in a situation like that. And I think Christianity could really shine if we concerned ourselves with what we might be able to do to help a mother or a father or a child in a situation like that and be a, a very strong witness to the world. And if we did that in such a way that, you know, whether or not abortion is legal or not becomes a non-issue because they have better options available to them. And a lot of issues are oversimplified and broken down to the point of controlling what happens or controlling what people do rather than helping someone in need. And I think that's what happens when we expend effort trying to win a fight instead of working towards a solution that could be better. And that's my opinion, you know, and no doubt others wouldn't see things the same way. Um, but when we talk about Jesus or the Bible or religion or social issues, whatever it might be, we, we need to be careful about what we're actually trying to accomplish in a given situation, whether we're trying to tell someone about Jesus, express a point of view, impart wisdom, or win a fight. And, and there's times when I suppose all of those are appropriate, but let's be careful what we do. In our passage, when Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, and like I say, some of the things he was, I read him, it almost sounds like he's mildly insulting to him. But Jesus isn't trying to win an argument with Nicodemus. He's not trying to win a fight. He's bringing light to inconsistency in the way Nicodemus thinks. And he's working towards a solution of Nicodemus understanding how to be right with God. And Jesus often points out inconsistencies. When you read through the New Testament, you see him interact with lots of different people. He often points out inconsistencies in the way people think, especially when he was talking to very religious people. And he often said, you say you're one thing, but you're actually something else. And that's kind of what he's saying to Nicodemus. You know, you, you say you're a teacher in Israel, but you don't really understand these things that I've said. You see, Nicodemus doesn't have a knowledge problem. He has a perception problem. He, Nicodemus doesn't have a knowledge problem. He has a perception problem. And Jesus points out inconsistencies in thought to bring about the right perception of knowledge. And when we think about that, pointing out inconsistencies to bring about the right perception of knowledge, what is a way that we might be able to actually apply that in a practical way in our own lives, in our own conversations, and telling people about Jesus? Well, how about this one? This is one we've all heard. Someone says, well, people are basically good, or I'm a good person. We've all heard that um, at some point. The implication being, if you're talking about God, that I'm good enough to gain God's acceptance. But that's inconsistent with the truth. Now, how might you point out that inconsistency? Uh, what if we compare that thinking with the Ten Commandments? Well, there's another one that I'm sure you've heard like me. Well, it's not like I've ever murdered anyone. Great, we'll take that commandment out and we'll compare your thinking with the other nine. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stole something? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Things like that. 
Well, uh, well, of course I've done those things. I'm not perfect. That's the correct perception of knowledge. I'm not perfect. But God's standard is perfection. And that's pointing out an inconsistency to bring about right perception of knowledge. And that should be done out of love and in working towards a solution of that person hearing about Jesus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel, but you don't know these things. And he's not saying that to insult Nicodemus. That's not why he says it. He's pointing out an inconsistency between what Nicodemus thinks and what is actually true. Nicodemus is, is not stupid. We talked about last week, he's well-established in society. He's successful. He's wealthy. He's all of these things. He's well-educated. And he is well-versed in Scripture. He knows it very, very well. And it's not that Nicodemus doesn't have knowledge. He just doesn't have the right perception of the knowledge that he has. And Jesus, he said in this same book in chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Or here in another couple of verses in John 3, 16, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And until someone has that knowledge and rightly perceives it, they can't see God's kingdom. That's kind of the, the point of this passage. And in saying what he does to Nicodemus, Jesus is further opening his mind to the possibility of perceiving what's true. Now, if you've ever pointed out inconsistencies in what someone says or does, or had that done to you, had someone point out inconsistencies or things that you've been wrong about, it's hard to hear that. And often people don't handle that well when that happens. It's difficult for us. It's hard to have those things pointed out that we might be wrong about, especially as we get older. Our brain is kind of like concrete that cures as we age. It gets harder and harder as we get older. And we form neural pathways in our brain. And the more we think a thought, the more ingrained in our mind it becomes. It's, it's a physical thing that happens. It's almost like a trench in your brain and it gets deeper the more you think the same thought. And the more you have had that thought, the harder it is to change. And then on top of that, our pride can get in the way and that just thinks, makes things that much more difficult for us. And it's hard to hear things that challenge the way we think. It's hard for me. And handling that well requires wisdom. And the Bible speaks to that in the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. It says, He who reproves a scorner gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man gets hurt. Do not reprove a scorner, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. There are a lot of things that are difficult to explain. If you've ever talked to anyone about the Bible, Jesus, Christianity, you've probably been asked a question that you've had to kind of go, well, you know, I don't really know. That's difficult to answer. There are a lot of things that are difficult to explain. The Bible gives us wisdom, it gives us guidance in many things, but it doesn't always ex exactly explain the how or the why. That takes more digging, more time, more learning, all of those things. One of the examples of that, this is another controversial issue, um, is how the earth came to be and how you and I got here, creationism. And the argument between creation and evolution has been going on for a while now. And when it comes to creation, the Bible doesn't answer many questions about how God created. 
It says he spoke and it happened. And of course, someone who is an evolutionist doesn't believe that. And there's also an idea that's kind of in between those two about theistic evolution where God made evolution happen. But Christianity and science, or maybe faith and science, are often viewed as being opposed to each other. You know, we hear that a lot from either side of those things. Um, some very intelligent people on both sides of that. And I've said before that honest science and honest religion will eventually come to the same conclusion. But I might retract that because I'm, I'm not sure if I believe that anymore. But not because I, I think that they're opposed to each other in any way. That's not what I think. They're different undertakings making complementary contributions. And the Bible's not a science book, and it shouldn't be treated that way. There are things that science addresses that the Bible does not, and things the Bible addresses that science does not. And they're different things. Science deals in finding and presenting facts. Religion deals in wisdom. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge, or what we do with those facts. Science doesn't create ethics or morals. Science attempts to present facts, but not necessarily what to do with them or what's good or what's right or how to handle those facts. That's the realm of religion. And when you take a topic like that, like creationism versus evolution, I believe that emphasis in our communication matters. Emphasis, priority matters. And there have been lots of big ministries and, and lots of money spent on arguing creationism versus evolution. And don't take me wrong. I'm not saying that doesn't matter or that's bad or that's unimportant. I don't mean that at all. But at the same time, convincing someone that creationism is true or that evolution is false is not necessarily doing what Jesus told us to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You're going to be witnesses for me, of all the Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, they all believe basically in the Genesis account of creation. And what I'm saying is that in that is that someone could be a firm believer in creationism and also firmly reject Jesus at the same time. It's not a belief in creationism, not even a belief in the validity of Scripture that saves a person. Those things matter. But remember that for the majority of Christian history, Christians didn't have the Bible, at least not as we know it. Most of them probably couldn't even read. And yet the story of Jesus continued and continued for many hundreds and hundreds of years. And here we are. It is the person of Jesus who saves people through his shed blood. In our communication, putting things in the right perspective is important. And Jesus does that in a masterful way in this interaction between himself and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a wise man, and we don't even see a negative reaction from him when Jesus says something that at least I could perceive as offensive. And Nicodemus, his previous knowledge, you know, he's, again, he's very religious, he's very well educated, he knows Old Testament scriptures well, but his previous knowledge had, in some ways, inoculated him against right perception and understanding the truth. And that can happen 
to anyone. Nicodemus thought he was right with God. He thought he had it figured out. He thought he knew how all that worked, how all that happened. He had a picture in his mind of who God was and how things worked with him. He had knowledge, but he didn't have the right perception of that knowledge. And Jesus points that out to him. And there are a lot of people in the world, even sitting in church pews, just like that. I knew someone once who sat in a church pew for 40 years, had heard the gospel hundreds and hundreds of times, but had never perceived it. Had never perceived it. But one day he did. And he was saved, he was baptized, and you know he went on from there. But gauging by the situation, and the fact that he continued to listen to Jesus, it doesn't seem unreasonable to think that he was thinking, well, maybe Jesus is right. Maybe there's something here I don't know. Maybe there's something here I don't understand. Maybe this is God's son. Maybe I need to be born again. And that's something that everyone needs to wrestle with, something that everyone needs to deal with. It's something that everyone needs to hear. But do you wonder what happened to Nicodemus after this? You ever think about this, this, obviously, this is a very, very well-known passage. Most people have heard it, even if they're non-Christians. But this interaction with Nicodemus, you ever wonder what happened to Nicodemus after that? I was thinking about that. Do you think he became a follower of Jesus? Well, the next time we see him is a few chapters later in chapter 7. And in that chapter, the uh, Pharisees and the priests, they send some temple guards to go arrest Jesus. And they go and they find Jesus and they hear what he's saying. And apparently what Jesus said was so compelling that they couldn't bring themselves to take Jesus into custody. And they go back and the Pharisees and the priests rebuke these guards for not following their orders and following through with what they were told to do. And Nicodemus says to him, you know, maybe we shouldn't dismiss Jesus or condemn with him without hearing him personally. But they'd already made up their minds, and they hadn't dealt with him. They hadn't spoke to him personally. They hadn't interacted with him. They hadn't dealt with that. They'd already decided what, what they were going to do. Like many people have, without really hearing the story of Jesus. And then the last place we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 19, after Jesus is crucified. And he's hoping, helping Joseph of Arimathea with the burial of Jesus. And Nicodemus brings 30 kilos, over 30 kilos of spices to help embalm Jesus. And that alone shows that he's probably pretty wealthy. And it also shows that he had great respect for Jesus at a minimum. Was Nicodemus a true follower of Jesus? What did he go on to do after the resurrection? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us, not exactly anyway. But either way, Judging by his interaction with Jesus changed him, changed who he was, changed the way he viewed things, changed the way he thought. And that's what an honest interaction with Jesus will do. It will change you. That's what the gospel will do. And it's easy to make a quick judgment, quick decision, and write all of that off, which is a shame because it's such a weighty thing such a profound thing. We're talking about eternity and 
where we're going to spend it when we talk about interacting with Jesus and understanding his story. So it's important that we share that in a way that people are going to listen to it. And it's important that we deal with it. And in any place, at any time, in any church, anywhere, there's going to be people who have never really wrestled with that, never really contended with it. And, you know, whether you're hearing this online, whether you're here in person, I want to ask you, is that something that you have actually thought about, focused on, and dealt with in your own heart? Who is Jesus? What is his story? Have you understood that he shed his blood on the cross for you so that you might be able to know him?